0: This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm
1: Chris Kreicho. And I'm Steven Caradini, And, and we're, we're back! back. <laughs> we didn't even plan that. Uh, we're just so excited to be back. We, uh, we took some time off and we rested up and we had significant life events and <laughs> went on vacations and stuff. Actually, I don't don't think that's true. I don't think either of us went on vacation. (laughs) I could really use a vacation. Uh, Yeah. Mostly, I took summer classes. Yeah, mostly, I studied for PhD exams and had significant life events happen. Stevens was a harder
0: summer than mine.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, in the past, you have
0: been on the internet. No, wait, wait, wait. wait.
1: Wait, wait, wait. We have some changes to winning slowly. Oh, it's true. And... Some of them are more on our side, and some of them are on your side. So our side, I am taking over the editing. And
0: and clearly we're—oh, I'm just laughing because clearly we're just getting back into this after, you know, a two-month hiatus. Yeah, totes. (laughs) Totes. The first
1: episode back, folks, is always a little rough. Always a little rough. So bear with us on the whole stepping on each other bit. But, uh, yeah, so I'm taking over the editing— And Chris is taking over the show notes because it just works out easier for us over the long haul, which means that the first couple episodes are going to be a little different sounding probably than (laughs) they were in the past, just because Chris and I will almost necessarily have slightly different editing styles. Indeed. So keep that in mind. And we may change it up again in the future, but for
0: right now, this is a good fit.
1: Yep. Also, we'll talk more about this sometime soon, but we have started a Patreon account, which we will link to in the show notes and which we have sent live on our social media accounts. If you are reading this, listening to this, and you've (laughs) Do we have transcripts now? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We don't. (laughs) Another thing that (laughs) Winning Slowly has done. Uh, No, we don't. So if you're listening to this and you've already subscribed to our Patreon, thank you one million times, but also... We recorded this before you did your subscription, so you're not thanked yet. But we will thank you. <laughs> we will thank next, you next time. Week. Next week. So check out our Patreon. It's linked in the show notes. It's pretty simple. It. It's patreon.com slash winning slowly. Mm-hmm. We like to keep it easy for you. It's true. It's true. And uh, we appreciate all your interest and investment, I guess, in winning slowly. Indeed. And now to the show. And now to the show. So, once upon a time, there was this
0: thing called the World Wide Web, and you would type www.someplace.com, and now you type all sorts of other different weird endings to places and so on. But one thing that has been true since early, early on in the days of the web, since probably 1994 or 5 or somewhere in there, is that whenever you go to a website you have large flashing things in your face trying to get you to buy things. And amazingly, even though we've gotten a lot better at designing almost all parts of the web over the last few decades, one thing hasn't changed. When you load websites, many of them flash large, flashy things in your face saying, BUY THIS THING! Some of them even play audio and video unprompted saying, BUY THIS THING!
1: Which is remarkable because everywhere else on the internet, we know that that's a horrible idea. That's a horrible idea. (laughs) And so the main way that people fund things on the internet is based on a horrible idea that no one does (laughs) anywhere else, which is remarkable in a variety of ways. A variety of ways that we are going to talk about over not one, but two episodes, because this troubles us in many, many ways. We'll we'll start by
0: qualifying this by saying we don't think advertising is inherently bad or evil or wrong. We do not think that funding your website with advertising is always inherently bad or evil or wrong. That's a necessary qualifier because we're going to heap an awful lot of criticism on the way that most sites do their advertising mm-hmm. and on the way that most advertising works over mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so you might mistake us for thinking that all advertising is bad or wrong. We don't think that, but we do think that the way that most people approach it has been thoughtless and has led to some really unhelpful outcomes for the internet as a whole, as it were, as well as for the very websites that are trying to prop themselves up with
1: advertising. Right. And so before we start heaping Invective, which <laughs> there will be some heaps... Heap, 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 Invective. heap, heap. heap, heap. We found something recently on the internet that is a perfect example of good advertising that shows how advertising <laughs> could work, even though it's limited, necessarily limited. I'm, I'm, I'm snickering over here because, well, it's hilarious. It's, it is hilarious. And that's the first part, what makes it great. So you may have been in a Denny's in your life. Yes, Denny's. Low cost, generally scoffed at 3 a.m. pancake place. Like, it's not even IHOP, people. It's Denny's. <laughs> However, in a striking move of self-awareness, Denny's realized that they are essentially what you do at 3 a.m., and they started a Tumblr. Now, you might be thinking, oh, great, another corporate shill cluttering up a good social network. It's, it's going to be awful. That's where you're wrong, the Denny's Tumblr is the funniest thing I have ever read on Tumblr. It's, it's so self-aware. It's so self-aware that it is absurdly funny. And it actually raises awareness and good feelings towards Denny's, which is the point of what advertising is supposed to do. It's supposed to get you to go and do something. Or to feel better about something so that when you want to do it, you think, oh, yeah, that plays with that thing. And so Denny's Tumblr doesn't try to inject corporate speak into Tumblr. It speaks to Tumblr in the language of Tumblr. <laughs> of Tumblr. <laughs> and so it has absurd gifts, Like the one, oh, my gosh, we'll link
0: one in the show notes that has a a, a, a person morphing out of a block of ham and back in and... Perfect one-liner joke associated with it. I I laughed so hard yeah. when Stephen linked me. I it, it broke me. It's it's remarkable. It's and remarkable. it just keeps getting funnier. You yeah. watch the GIF over and over again and look at the one-liner joke that goes with it and
1: you laugh harder and then harder <laughs> <laughs> and then it, harder again. It is it is a great internet joke and what's great is that Denny's Tumblr isn't a one-off gem. Like they don't just post things once a week. They actually act like a Tumblr person and they right. post all the time. Right. <laughs> and they post just hilarious things. My favorite one so far is the they have a question and answer box like some Tumblrers do and someone asked <laughs> Denny's, "Are you single?" and the response was, "We are a restaurant." <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it's fantastic. (laughs) It's perfect.
0: I love it. But what this points us to is the value of what has been called native advertising. Now, a lot of things get called native advertising that, that maybe aren't really, but what we would describe as native advertising is advertising that really actually fits its context. And one of the main problems that a lot of internet advertising has had is it doesn't necessarily fit its context. Now it has others, and we'll get to those in a moment, and some of them are serious structural issues, but just at the most basic surface level, when I'm reading through Tumblr, if I find Denny's Tumblr and it fits the medium, it, it exercises the norms and the stereotypes and the patterns and the lingo of tumblr well that endears denny's to me in a way that one more corporate blog thing does not and it's not so much because of the content it's clearly advertising it's obviously and patently advertising but it is advertising that is sensitive to its context and its medium and Mm -hmm. likewise you can see the same thing in companies that do twitter well
1: like taco bell
0: Yeah, or that do Facebook well, or that do any of these things. And one of the things that stands out as in contrast with a lot of the advertising, the other kinds of quote-unquote native advertising you see on many of the clickbait sites, which we've talked about before, has much more to do with capturing your time and attention and with misleading you. And the thing with the best native advertising is, it doesn't mislead you. It never pretends to be something other than what it is. It doesn't pretend to be an article. It doesn't pretend to be something besides advertising, but it speaks the language of its context. And that's valuable. So there there are ways to advertise in the internet age that work well, that respect the audience, and that ultimately do serve your brand. But there are also a lot of ways that don't do
1: that, even in quote unquote native advertising right so one type of native quote unquote advertising that you see on social media and we're purposely going from the the lowest to the highest structural elements uh, mm-hmm. to set up you know we're not just going to bash you with the the top level argument, but one way that you <laughs> see it in in advertising like Twitter or Facebook is the promoted post, which is an attempt at doing native advertising because it's native in the sense that it appears in the flow of content, but it's not native in the sense that it's an actual sort of content that would exist in that platform. Mm -hmm. So the definition of native that is being sold to companies that are doing promoted posts on Twitter and Facebook is a definition that's different than Denny's native. Right. There is a native that it is part of the flow of content. It's not set apart as a sidebar ad, but it's not native in the sense that it's organic or speaking the language of the people who are using it. And I think that's an important distinction that Mm -hmm. almost never gets made. So stepping up
0: from there, because we do want to establish that, look, we recognize there are those kinds of distinctions. We also want to note that Even when you're doing that well, there's a big difference between saying, hey, we're going to have a presence on this platform, whether that's Tumblr or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever your social media platform of choice might be, and having ads that are on a page. Now, that's not necessarily a bad difference, but it is a difference. So when I land on the New York Times or on some other site along those lines, And there are a number of ads in the sidebar or interstitial ads in the midst of an article or popover ads when I hit it on my phone. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of ads are much more in line with the way that advertising in print media worked historically. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us because many things about the content-oriented web, especially in newspapers and magazines, very much reflect the way that things were done in physical newspapers and physical magazines over the last century. However, that doesn't necessarily mean it works particularly well. And in fact, what we have seen over the last several years is the value of those kinds of things dropping precipitously. And the reason is that unlike in a newspaper or a magazine where you put your ad out there and you assumed you got some level of response from it because you didn't have any way to measure how many people looked at that ad or how many people's response. I shouldn't say you didn't have any way, but you didn't have a particularly precise way. Right. On the internet, you have an incredibly precise way. You know exactly how many people have clicked that ad and with all the tracking data that gets associated with it, a topic that we will return to in next week's episode, Mm -hmm. you often have an idea, a very good idea of what sorts of purchasing behavior people engage in after they have seen your ad. And what people have found is that that kind of advertising is cheap to very nearly worthless in how much its value provides per view. Putting your ads on that kind of page just doesn't get you a lot of value as an advertiser, as a brand, which means that then as a producer of content trying to support your content through advertising, it becomes increasingly difficult to do so because your advertisers aren't willing to pay you very much. And if your advertisers aren't willing to pay you very much, then you have to start trying to get your ads more aggressive and you end up in a death spiral all too often.
1: Yeah. And so you might think, wow, well, that's a kind of a a jerk move on newspapers parts. And it totally was because (laughs) there was no way to quantify who was reading it other than circulation numbers. And there were always tricks to make your circulation numbers slightly bigger to humongously bigger than they were. And it was important that those numbers be big so that people would be like, oh, man, even if not everybody reads this, then maybe some people will read it and they have big circulation numbers. So newspapers floated themselves a long time on the very (laughs) explicit fact that they were unquantifiably awesome. (laughs) They were awesome in a way that no one could define numerically. And this was incredibly important because it was able to be tied to this idea of a social good. So the newspaper is a social good. People are going to read it because it's good for them, even if it's not fun. And so you can put your ads in there and people are going to see them because people are going to scan over the articles and they'll just come across them because they're part of the reading experience. Well, now with the internet, almost all of those theoretical foundations have been eroded. People don't scan over advertisements as they read across a page because they don't really read across a page that way that they right. used to. People now know exactly how much people aren't accessing or clicking on or interacting with those ads And furthermore, the idea of a newspaper as a social good, while not gone, has been eroded by different concepts of how content works. Some Mm -hmm. of which we've talked about before and some of which we're about to talk about in that a, a looping sort of system, ads have started to affect the way that we think about content. Right. Because
0: you see ads in these ways that often do end up being deceptive in the inline, quote unquote, native, but really just trying to make you think something is content when it's actually an ad. And in that the ads have been so intrusive that people have tended to start blocking them and so on. People are apt to find alternate sources of news. People are apt to go to Twitter rather than just to a newspaper for other structural reasons, but also for this one, that they can just skim down through and get a decent idea of headlines and maybe click through to blogs that they like, etc., without getting inundated with horrible, horrible ads. And for all that the blogosphere may have peaked in its influence, or at least the influence of individual bloggers on their own— Right. We also see that there's been a massive shift at an infrastructure level in terms of how people get their news, in terms of how news is sourced, even by someone like the New York Times or CNN. Oftentimes, the first people reporting things are people who live in a given area who are tweeting about it or posting on Facebook about it or blogging about it or Mm -hmm. Instagramming about it or vining about it Mm -hmm. or any number of approaches that have substantially eroded the value proposition of the standalone
1: newspaper with its dedicated reporters and that have... eroded it in the public perception. I don't think it actually eroded it in terms of fact-checking and gratifying and contextualizing. So I would would qualify that it is eroded in the public view, but not necessarily in its actual value proposition. It has, in the sense of talking about
0: business models, it has eroded the perceived value from the customer's perspective, even though it remains that public good to society. Right. And so those systemic and structural changes have then, as Stephen said a moment ago, ended up creating a vicious cycle because if the New York Times is a less valuable to its customers property for those reasons they may be less inclined to go there but then the New York Times has based its online revenue or had it has introduced a pay model in the last few years that is helping them with this to some extent when they had an only advertising driven model and as most other sites do have only advertising driven models well If people are finding less value in your publication versus other publications, and you're dependent on their seeing and possibly clicking on ads on your site, you're in trouble if they start going to other sites. And this leads you to, if you are desperate and foolish, add the kind of ads to your site that actually drive customers further away. They start being auto-playing audio that you can't find or turn off, because that gets you a higher value from, the advertiser selling it for the simple reason that advertisers do know that however annoying those are, they do get more customer interaction.
1: It might be negative customer interaction, (laughs) but in some ways, advertising still works on the any attention is good attention sort of model, Mm -hmm. which we don't think is good, but it still exists. (laughs) So this cycle of more ads pushing people to various different places to get their news where they can avoid ads leads to a bifurcation of how content producers think about ads. One is the instant turn to the race to the bottom, which would be Buzzfeed and its ilk, where the content is largely interchangeable. Instead, they're really just selling the idea that people will go and click on lists of kittens or of various (laughs) who-are-you-in-this-pop-culture-canon-quizzes, et cetera, et cetera. And to their credit, BuzzFeed does have journalists who Mm -hmm. are invested in doing good work, but BuzzFeed as a concept is still intertwined with this idea that you get the clicks, you get the views, you get the ads, you get the eyeballs. And that's one one way that people have dealt with this idea that, that content is not a sort of aggregate thing that keeps people at a place. The quality of the content is mm-hmm. not driving loyalty the way that we would like to imagine that it did with newspapers, although we know that newspapers often <laughs> had a monopoly on that sort of thing. So maybe there was never loyalty to content quality in the first place. We can we can't say. We can say that with magazines, but we can't say it with newspapers. Right. So that's one way that people have dealt with this is to say, okay, well, content is essentially uh, a churn. Let's just see how much we can crank out and see how many ads we can get. And to BuzzFeed's credit, like I said, they are supporting their strong news with these other articles, which are essentially just ads, even the whole article can just be seen as an ad. <laughs> it's true. The other way that people have dealt with this is largely hand and paper <laughs> closings. That's really the other yeah. end of the spectrum, is that there hasn't been a really good response to the idea that, okay... If people are perceiving our value proposition differently than we want them to perceive it, how can we make them perceive it in the ways that we want to perceive it? Which, ironically, is advertising, but it's a very different type of advertising. Mm -hmm. It's a way of putting yourself into culture, sometimes by using truly native content, the first type that we talked about, to show people that there is... A different sort of quality level going on here because that's always been the proposition of newspapers is that we have dedicated staff and we produce quality work by dint of the fact that this is our job and that's important Right.
0: And one of the tricks is convincing your customers that that's important, or at least convincing a large enough swath of customers that it's important that you remain sustainable. One of the analogies that is interesting to look at is the standalone blogger who has a subscription model, the Ben Thompson's or the John Gruber's or the The like. Yeah, Andrew Sullivan until recently. Right. There are a fair number of individual bloggers who've made this work, and some of them even like Andrew Sullivan's site on a team site that was larger than just his own writing. Mm -hmm. However, the thing that those all have going for them is a distinct voice and an editorial stance that is clear and a value proposition that differentiates them from the rest of the blogging market in ben thompson's case it's just being really smart and really good at analyzing and predicting and typically not falling prey to the traps of whatever the common narrative is but actually taking a step back and analyzing things carefully and seeing what the real strengths and weaknesses of different tech companies are he's differentiated himself in a way that To be fair to newspapers is difficult to do when you're a reporter of general news. When you can focus on a niche, it's much easier to do that, and it is also easier than if you want to have a sponsored post in your feed, A, to explain that to your customers as, hey, this is part of how I continue bringing this to you, and B, for those to be targeted to your customers because you know basically the kinds of people reading your site, and therefore so do your advertisers. If you're the LA Times or CNN, that's going to be much more difficult to manage. You you cannot afford to specialize in that way because it is your value proposition is precisely that you are reporting all the news that's fit to print as the Times, New York Times would have it. You are therefore attempting to appeal to an incredibly broad swath of the population. And it's very, very difficult then to target your advertising especially without getting into the kinds of, well, shall we say, shady practices that we're going to spend most of our next episode talking about.
1: And so I think it's important to note that we're not saying that large general interest news websites are inevitably dead. That is not what we're saying here. We're saying that a particular model of funding large general interest websites is not working out well large general interest (laughs) websites. It's creating a vicious cycle, and it's not sustainable. Right, because you either have no way to address it, and you just kind of worry, or you go down the BuzzFeed route. So that's particularly because of all the things we just said. There is a trajectory to ads and a trajectory to the idea that... The way that we make money is by getting people to read this thing other than the content. And so if you extend that logically, of course you're going to end up at a point where content is largely interchangeable because that's not the value proposition that's keeping you alive. The value proposition that's keeping you alive is people read our stuff, you can advertise on it. And that's going to inevitably point towards a way of doing things that won't sustain the type of work that people want to do or that that people want to get out to the public in ways that the public wants to receive their information. Right. At, at the end of the day,
0: how you align your incentives as a company is going to drive the kinds of things you do. And everyone who has pegged their way of survival on Mass advertising has a set of incentive incentives associated with that now that are proving very deleterious to good content,
1: and we're again to to wrap up. We're not saying that all advertising is bad. We're not saying that CNN is dying. We're saying that in a particular set of ways of thinking, advertising has a particular trajectory in a particular set of incentives associated with it that do not privilege people going to content and having quality content loyalty but instead searching around for the least onerous experience which often will not be on large giant websites because a lot of smaller websites or niche websites will have different or none at all advertising so the consumer is being spread out throughout the web because of the ways that people are dealing with advertisements. And you might think to yourself, but this is dumb. I don't even have ads. I have an ad blocker. And to that we say, tune in next time. So before you go, we do have some thoughts on the recent issues with Greece. They might not be what you expect though. Indeed. Stephen and I were talking
0: about this yesterday and one of the things that is striking and rather tragic in the midst of it is well most of the pressure coming on Greece not all of it but most of it is coming from Germany and, and its Ge- allies. And it and its allies, yes, it's it's fiscal and economic allies. And Germany has insisted all along that Greece needs to pay its debts to be treated as a respectable nation in the modern world. Any student of the history of the 20th century can tell you, however, well, that perhaps Germany ought to go reread the parable of the unforgiving servant. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's a parable that Jesus told in which a servant was forgiven an unimaginably great debt, and then went and found another servant who owed him some money and beat the tar out of him for a, a fractional debt. And the master of the original servant said, uh, wait, no, and threw him into jail and dealt with him because he couldn't forgive when he had been forgiven. Again, any student of the 20th century will recognize, first of all, that much of what led to the awful situation in Germany in the 1930s that ultimately let someone like Hitler get in power was because of unforgiven debts and austerity measures and harsh punishments. That Germany could not sustain, and its economics, its economy collapsed. And then again, that in the 1950s, Germany was on the verge of collapse. It had massive debts, it could not pay, and the rest of the world wrote off those debts. So Germany stands here as not, a nation- Not all of the debts. No, but... wrote them down massively. Yes. And didn't exact the kinds of austerity measures of the country that have been required of Greece. And so Germany stands here today as an economically successful nation in large part because it was forgiven and yet is largely unwilling to forgive. And well, we would hope that Germany would wake up and recognize this and show mercy as it has been shown mercy. And we hope that Greece and the rest of the EU and indeed the rest of the world's economy get out of this
1: without a giant mess. Right. And we would hope that, you know, to those who would say, look, I wasn't there. Those were not even my parents. Those were my grandparents and great-grandparents. That's tough. That requires a lot of maturity and and fortitude to say, I remember something I was not there for. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. And so we hope the best for Germany that they are able to, as this next austerity round rolls through, which everybody looking at it does not think it's going to go well, no. that... They are able to look at the past and learn from it.
0: Indeed. Show notes for this week's episode are available at winningslowly.org slash 3.01. You can follow us on app.net or Twitter at at winningslowly, or you can check out our Facebook
1: page as well. We'll have all of these linked in the show notes. And... The opening song was Marina and I by The Gorgeous Chans. Please don't use it without permission. We asked and they said yes. Do check us out on
0: Patreon. We'll have a link to that on the show notes and on our website as well. Until next time, thanks for listening.
1: I think that's an important distinction that Mm -hmm. almost never gets made. I agree. <laughs> <laughs>